6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5. Well, we're studying the epistles to the Thessalonians, and tonight we're going to explore the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. We never go into the Word of God without prayer. It's the Holy Spirit that we rely on. So let's bow our hearts for our word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of these letters from Paul. We thank you, Father, for the insights they provide us. His earliest epistles and yet the most significant eschatological epistles in the New Testament. We thank you, Father, for your word. We pray that you, through your Holy Spirit, would open our hearts and lives, that we might grow in grace in the knowledge of our coming King in whose name we commit this hour and ourselves. Amen. The first and second epistles are regarded by most experts as the first epistles of Paul. He wrote these on his second missionary journey, both of them apparently from Corinth. The other epistles, the epistles of Galatians, Romans, and Corinthians belong to his third journey. That's later. And the epistles to Philemon, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians are known as the prison epistles, which he wrote later from his first captivity in Rome, just to give you a quick perspective of them. But in 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, of course, we recognize that it's primarily a Gentile church. How you turn to God from idols, serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven. That was the flavor of the first chapter. The second chapter is regarded by many as the greatest missionary manual ever written. And the third chapter is just caring for those that he was dealing with. Chapter 4 is the one that we just finished, the blessed hope, a phrase that comes from the letter of Titus, but refers, of course, to the return of Jesus Christ. And we explored in some depth the ultimate nonlinearity, the harpazo, or commonly called the rapture. And so that was chapter 4, from 13 to 18. This time we have chapter 5, and we're going to deal with another area that is also very confused in the minds of many. A period of time known as the Day of the Lord. We'll be talking quite a bit about that tonight. And actually, in his second letter of three chapters that we'll be dealing with subsequently. The Day of the Lord. See, following the catching away of the saints, the harpazo, if you will, they'll come upon this world the darkest period it has ever known. And after the 20th century, that's a heavy statement. It's really astonishing to realize the 20th century is the bloodiest century in the history of man. And yet, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. The day of the Lord, it's called. The time of Jacob's trouble is what Jeremiah calls it. The great tribulation is what it's quoted, Jesus calls it. He labels it that himself, quoting from Daniel 12. What's more certain than death and taxes? Well, death and judgment, that's, who, that's what's certain. And how can we as sinners get ready for the coming judgment? Now, Paul is going to deal with this topic 
to remind them of what he had already taught them. And what makes that so remarkable to many is that he was in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, less than a month, and started a church there. And he, in those early weeks of their Christian walk, he taught them the harpazo, the second coming, the great tr- all these things that we regard as eschatological, he taught them in their first three weeks of Christian walk. That's, that itself is rather uh, surprising. Let's just read through our, uh, the session for tonight, the fifth chapter. It says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say, Peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as a travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of the light and children of the day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet and a hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, and be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded. I'll explain that term later anyway. Uh, Support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray that your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That's the chapter. Let's try to unpack it here a little bit. He opens by saying, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. Notice the plurals there. Times and seasons. And that, of course, is exactly what Jesus said to the disciples as he was ascending in Acts chapter 1. The word chrony and Cairo, it's a chronological crisis is really what the term means. Turn that over, it's really an opportunity. Jonah and Nineveh is another example of that. Forty days from ground zero, you may recall. And repentance in Nineveh caused a change that time. Very interesting lesson there in Second Chronicles 7 and so forth. So there is hope for America. People often ask. People are very nervous, very frightened. There is hope for America, and it's not in our financial system. It's not in our military, and it's not in our legislature. No, the hope for America is in God. So it'll take a miracle to save America, but God is in the miracle business. Let's keep that in focus. But in any case, as far as the times and seasons, the main idea is it's not for us to know. That's what Jesus told his disciples. 
just before he's leaving, they ask him, are you going to now set up the kingdom? He didn't say he wasn't going to do it. He says, not for you to know the timing. Is he going to set it up? Absolutely. He's going to set up on the king, uh, his kingdom on the planet Earth. But it's his timing. In fact, in Mark 13, 32, it says, not the angels in heaven, not the Son, but the Father only knows the timing. Very surprising rendering there in the Mark 13 uh, quote. Same things in Matthew, but without that phrase. Not even the Son. There's a point at which, at least at that time, that the Father knew something the Son didn't. Strange verse. Now, we, of course, have had a whole history of people that insist upon setting dates. We barraged you last time with dozens of verses which say don't, you don't know the day nor the hour and so forth. But nevertheless, Joachim of Flores back in the 13th century and a whole bunch of others all through history, including the uh, mathematician John Napier in 1688 and others, set dates. William Miller, 1843, and then he revised it. No, 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 it's October 22nd of 1844. He still was wrong. And on it goes. In Wisenant's books, 88 Reasons for 88 are very inexpensively obtained today, I believe. Harold Camping in 94 and others. They're not the only ones. And it, there's more coming. Here we are in 2012, and the Mayans have had, they've got their chips on the table with what they think. And I haven't so much lately, but I, about once a week, get a manuscript from somebody who's unraveled the code and he knows when it's going to happen. And I always see what date he's predicting, and then I plan to review that paper the next day afterwards. You know. What's your protection against this foolishness? The whole counsel of God. Any perception you have about eschatology or anything else for that matter needs to fit God's whole plan. So your challenge is to understand the plan in its overview. And then that's your protection against foolishness. You want to avoid one-verse theology in any case. Continuing, Paul says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Now, one of the things you will recognize as we go on, he is referring to people of the night, and he's contrasting you with the people of the night. He's going to make some remarks here. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night to those who are in darkness. But ye are, he's going to say shortly, but ye are not in the night, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Many people quote that out of context. Well, you know, he comes as a thief in the night. Not to me, he isn't. You see, I'll show you why. See, Jesus used the same analogy of the thief in the night back in Matthew 24. If the good man of the house knew when the thief was come, you know, so forth. You know, he, Jesus used that same metaphor, if you will. See, the problem with burglars is they never tell you when they're coming. There's no advanced announcement of their arrival. There's no warning postcard. Hey, I'm going to rob your house tonight, you know. And that's the, that's the analogy that it, even Jesus himself used. And that's Paul is using it here. All of this was previously taught in, in Matthew 24 and Luke 12 and uh, elsewhere. It was a regular part of apostolic teaching. For when they, wow, when they shall say peace and safety, I want you to notice the pronoun just shifted. He's not saying ye, us, they. Pick up on that. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Do you realize, just from the grammar, that we've shifted gears here? From us, gang. Not us. Those guys. Them. They. Second person. Change of pronouns. In the first two verses, Paul's addressing brethren. Us. Insiders. Okay? Now he says it's not necessary for him to write to them about the times and seasons. Why? Because they will have nothing to do with it. 
believers will be gone by then. That's clear from the chapter 4 that we just finished last time. Okay? The harpazo has made this academic to those that are reading here. When they shall say what? Peace and safety. It only appears here in the New Testament. From what do they feel themselves secure? Well, they're certainly insecure from what's coming in any case. See, like the thief, there's no warning. Uh, no warning. It's unexpected. What? Sudden destruction. That's not physical annihilation, but rather the, ex- the eternal separation of the lost from Christ. That's heavy. That's more... That's heavier than, than any physical pain or the things we normally associate with that. Then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. It's fascinating to me to see how often throughout the Old and New Testament, birth pangs or travel with a child are used idiomatically of the Great Tribulation. Now this is, the, just, this is just the opposite of what's awaiting the believers. Salvation is awaiting the believers. This is the opposite of salvation. Are you with me? Are you tracking me here? Okay. And it cometh upon them. That means by surprise, suddenly. As travail upon a woman with child. Now that's an interesting thing. The term birth pangs, if you will. All through the scripture. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 13. We'll take a look at that before the... We're going to look again at Isaiah 26. We looked at it last time. I I want to show you something else about that. And Jeremiah 4, Hosea 13, Micah 4, and several places in the New Testament. Travail upon a woman. Idiomatic of the tribulation, the day of wrath of God. No escape. It's unavoidable. Unless you're saved. If you're saved, you're out of there. Got the picture? Strange stuff. Anyone that doesn't recognize that this doctrine of the harpazo, the rapture, is, is the most preposterous doctrine in Christianity. People think we're crazy, and I understand why. The believers are going to be snatched out of here, and then comes out the day of wrath. Ooh, wow. You know, that, many, many, many churches don't teach that. That has only one thing going for it. It happens to be very clearly scriptural, both Old and New Testament. But last time we looked at an Old Testament passage, but I want to go a verse or two earlier to pick up the thread You may recall we looked at what might be an allusion to the rapture in Isaiah 26, starting about verse 19. I want to start four verses earlier at verse 16 and refresh, then you'll you'll recognize the last part of this from last time. We're reading from Isaiah 26. Lord, in trouble have they visited thee. They poured out a prayer when thy chastening was upon them. Like as a woman with child that draweth near the time of her delivery is in pain. And crieth out in her pang, so have we been in thy sight, O Lord. The word prayer there, by the way, happens to be a whispered secret prayer. Just to give you a little flavor here. But he continues, we have been with child, we have been in pain, we have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Then he continues with what we looked at last night. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation be overpassed. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. 
The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Wow. Now, there's many scholars that don't see the rapture there. I can't resist it. Come, my people. Sounds like John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll receive you unto myself. And that's what it's talking about. Shut thy doors. Not his doors, your doors. Shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Well, let's continue here in 1 Thessalonians verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day overtake you as a thief. Now, when you get to verse 4, you pick up the fact that there's an antiphonal thing here. There's a, what's called a chiasmus. Children of the day, children of the night. And you're a children of the day, not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. What does that really mean? There's an important contrast here with the unbelieving world. And we are not overtaken by surprise. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Why? Because we're expecting him at any moment. We're not setting dates, but we, ex we, are, we position our lives so we expect him at any moment. His priorities will overrule anything we have in mind. The day of the Lord is what we're talking about. See, the rapture, or the harpazo, ends the day of the church. Some people say the day of grace, and that's a tragic label. Way back in the Schofield Bible and also the writings of Clarence Larkin, as they, as they began to recognize that there's seven clear dispensations in the history of, the, of, of uh, the biblical history, they labeled the church period the day of grace. Now, that discredited in many, many people's minds the whole idea because every age was characterized by grace. So calling the day of the church the day of grace is a little, it's obviously where grace is being uh, emphasized, but uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's an unfortunate label. So I'm calling it here the day of the church so, you don't get, so we don't get caught up in that debate. The rapture ends the day of the church and begins the day of the Lord. Okay? It's a period of time which begins with, with the great tribulation and goes through the millennial reign of Christ here upon the earth. That does not mean that the beginning of the Great Tribulation and the Rapture are coterminous. There's a transition period between the two. We don't know how long it is. That's typical of all the, all the dispensations. The Day of the Lord denotes a day when God intervenes in history to deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment and to establish His kingdom. Yes, there is a... When you pray, thy kingdom come. That's what you're praying for. For Jesus to return and establish his kingdom on the planet earth. It's a kingdom that has a king, it has a capital, it has a geography, it has subjects. That's what we're dealing with here. Now there's sorrow for the unsaved and joy for the saved. That's the great summary of it. Let's take a look of this day of the Lord as Isaiah would describe it. We'll see it. He calls it the day of wrath. Let's take a look at a few verses here. In chapter 13 of Isaiah, Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light, the sun shall be darkened in his going forth, and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. And I will punish the world for their evil, and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. And skipping down another verse, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place, wow, in the wrath of the Lord of hosts, and in the day of his fierce anger. Wow. The earth shall remove out of her place. Did you know, you know, our standard weapon 
in our military arsenal is a four megaton warhead. But the Russians have built just a couple of 25 megaton warheads. And I remember participating in a study with GE Valley Forge back many years ago, but they did the study that that's, that's, a, that's a warhead that's too big to be used for anything. In fact, if you take a, a few number of those and detonate them at one time, you would alter the orbit of the Earth. It's a very impractical kind of weapon. It's not, it's not clear what you'd use it for. But interesting to get that perspective here. The day of the Lord, called the day of wrath in Isaiah, but also alluded to in Joel 2 and Amos 5 and Zephaniah 1 and 2 and Revelation 6, a whole fistful of it there. The time of Jacob's trouble is the label that Jeremiah uses of it in Jeremiah 30 verse 7. Matthew, in the, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus points out that all inhabitants of the land will tremble. But we do know that there is a church that is kept from the hour. In the Church of Philadelphia in uh, Revelation chapter uh, 3, verse 10. Not only kept from what's happening, kept from the very time of what's happening. The word hour is very important there. Kept from the time. And of course, the result of the uncertainty for the unprepared, this could be contrasted with Noah and the flood of Noah. Also with Lot, out of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a number of biblical examples that point to that. Let's continue here in, in Matthew 24, just to pick up that quote. For then shall be great tribulation. Jesus himself labels the period that way. Such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened. There should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. You know, it's interesting. We live in a day where the technology is now available. If we were reading this, say, during the Civil War, 1860, say, we can't imagine the world wiping itself out with muskets and bayonets. Do a lot of damage, as we did then, but not, you wouldn't see the world wiping itself out with that weapons technology. But the reality today is that there's more than enough inventory of weapons that run the risk of wiping out the entire planet Earth. Except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. Ye are all the children of the light and children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. He's just underscoring this division. He comes as a thief of the night to the children of night, the children of darkness, not to us. He doesn't catch us by surprise is the idea here. Not, we are not of the night nor of darkness. This is called a chiasmus. It's like a rhetorical reversal. Light, day, night, darkness. And Paul indulges in that structure frequently in Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 4, and 2 Corinthians 6, elsewhere. See, you and I are transplanted into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. So we're not even in, the, we're not in that group. There's no twilight zone here. You're either in one or the other. You're either in the night or the day, if you will. Therefore, Paul continued, Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. See, that's the opposite of sleep, being awake and watch. And uh, don't be indifferent to the spiritual realities. See, all true prophetic teaching has an application. This is called the doctrine of eminence that could happen any moment. The eminence of his return is an impelling motive to be living for him every moment of every day. He should be an overwhelming priority on everything we do, everything on our schedule. Some people carry a little sign over the desk, perhaps today. Just a reminder that it might be today. 
as we go about our affairs, we can't help but sort of just presume that tomorrow is like yesterday. Next month like last month. Next year like last year. And yet, when we look around life, we begin to realize, no, it's not linear. There are non-linearities. There are things that disrupt, that we all you know, extrapolate linearly, but we live in a non-linear world. Weather-wise, financially, health-wise, and so forth. You need to be recognized the ultimate non-linearity is coming soon. Eminence. It demands morally and spiritually wakeful activity. Being on the alert against the assaults of sin and unrighteousness. And that's a moment-by-moment war that you and I are in. His return is one of the chief objects of Christian watchfulness. We should be watching for lots of different things, but that's the paramount one. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. See, the children of the night are contrasted with the children of the day. Not intoxicated by the stimulus of this world. Glamour, pleasures, and appearances, and so forth. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, and the hope of salvation. Us, who are the day. See, all the way through this letter, be conscious of those two groups, because what he says to one doesn't apply to the other. And that coin has two sides. We are contrasted with those of the night. And he makes an allusion here that's borrowed from the armor of God in Ephesians 6, if you will. See, we're not only a watchman, we're a warrior. We're not a spectator on the sidelines watching. We're in the fray here, whether we like it or not. Like a soldier guarding himself against a surprise attack, as the idiom he's using here. The breastplate that protected the heart. Where's your heart? Get into discussion with people, what's the most important stewardship? Is it your career or is it your family? There's one that's more important than either of those. Stewardship of your heart. Where's your heart? Is it on God? Anything that distracts you from that is idol worship. Ooh, that's pretty rough. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.